You know, when you talk about kings and you talk about conquering kings, there's always a, uh, there's always an image that comes to mind when you think about kings conquering for the first time, kings taking over. Uh, you've seen, you've, you, we've all seen stories where, where there's a king who is not known by the masses as to be the one true king and then he's told through prophetic utterance or he's told through some sage-like encounter or he's told through some mentor or some person who was banished from the, uh, banished from the kingdom with him that, hey, you are the rightful heir, you should take over, right? And, and there's, there's typically an image and a picture that comes to mind when something like that happens, right? There's, there's normally training, and after training, there's a, there's a, there's a, 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 a banding of, of all the other people that were banished out of the kingdom, all the outsiders, they come together, rally behind this one true king, and then they go and they storm the gates of the kingdom, they take over, right? There's typically violence, right? Knives and torches and more knives and arrows and and the king takes over the king through violence finally takes his throne and that and that's how that's how he conquers that's how she conquers for i mean you know i mean you've seen this king arthur right you've seen this last dragon bruce leroy taking his rightful place from show enough right there's a fight, there's violence for him to get his spot back. Black Panther. I mean, you've seen this over and over and over again. And so when you talk about a king conquering, there's a tendency in our minds to, to, to kind of paint this picture about how that king is supposed to conquer. And then there's this king. The king that Isaiah speaks of. And the way that this king goes about conquering is completely different from any other picture that our mind would like to uh, paint. Totally different. Last week, we spent time asking the question, what should we expect from this coming king's kingdom? And we answered that question from the perspective of the prophet who spoke concerning the king 700 years before the king even showed up on earth. We said that the coming king's kingdom would come from humble beginnings, that it would be a shoot out of the stump of Jesse. In other words, he would come from the lineage of King David, but he would have humble beginnings. We talked about the kingdom being a place where true justice would reign, where there would be no more injustices. The righteousness would have its final and perfect say. We talked about a coming kingdom where peace will be perfected amongst the, cre um, amongst the inhabitants of the kingdom. And we talked about a coming kingdom where the advancement and the spread of that kingdom would know no end. It would just continue on throughout eternity. And so there's a lot to think about as we think about the coming kingdom, but the question I want to ask, uh, ask this morning is how does that king bring his kingdom? How does that king, in other words, conquer? When you look at verse 13 of chapter 52, it says, Behold, my servant act, shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. He acts wisely 
not because it's painless. See, the servant in this text is getting credit for acting wisely, but as we're about to read through this text, whereas Matt just read through this text, the path is a path of suffering. And it's not normally considered wise to run towards your suffering. So he's declared to be acting wisely, not because he acts in a way that leaves him unscathed and leaves him protected, but he is deemed wise even though his actions place him in harm's way. In other words, the coming king conquers with a wisdom that is not of this world. The coming king conquers with a wisdom that is not of this world. He acts wisely and this wisdom leads to an exaltation. Again, what we're about to read doesn't sound very wise, but it leads to exaltation nonetheless. This commitment to walk through suffering for something greater is how we get to the wisdom in this scenario. See, the servant in this scenario, the king in this scenario, sees past the suffering to the victory. God's wisdom doesn't, doesn't always appear very wise on the surface to the rest of the world. So how is this wisdom manifested? In verse 14 of chapter 52, look with me. It says, and as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Pay attention to the suffering on display. His appearance was marred. In verse 14, we hear of a king, a servant, being beaten so brutally and so viciously that he is no longer recognizable. He's beyond human semblance. In other words, he no longer resembles a human being. Under any circumstance, this appearance would be the look of defeat. The look not of a king conquering, but the look of one being conquered. But listen to what is said of this battered king, verse 15. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. His conquering shall be astonishing in such a way that, that the mouths of the kings shall be shut because of him. As many, were, as many as were astonished by his suffering shall be astonished by his conquering. His conquering shall be universal. It says nations will be impacted by this conquering. Kings will shut their mouths as a result of this conquering. And his conquering shall be redemptive. It says nations shall be sprinkled. Sprinkling meaning atoned and covered. This is the wisdom of God that a servant would suffer and bring redemption for the world through his suffering. That a servant would be a king. And that that servant would suffer so much that he would suffer beyond human recognition, no longer even being able to tell whether or not he's human or beast. And in so doing, he would be exalted through that. In so doing, he would be high and lifted up through that. 
The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that the word of the cross is folly, other words, foolishness, to those who are perishing. In other words, the people that look at the cross that, that haven't been, haven't embraced the cross, they see the cross and they say, I don't get it. I don't get how this is conquering anything. I don't get how this means winning. Bruce Leroy didn't look this bad when he won. This isn't what winning looks like. Black Panther didn't look like this when he won. He took his throne and he was clean, had a great outfit. This isn't what winning looks like. But God's wisdom appears foolish to everyone else because no one else knows the end that God is accomplishing but him. See, another thing about the coming king's conquering wisdom should be automatically evident based on what we've read thus far, and it's this. It is so out of the box that it's going to be difficult to be accepted. It is so out of the ordinary from what we understand conquering to mean that it's going to be difficult to accept it. Beginning at verse 1, chapter 53, it says this. Who has believed what he has heard from us? God is now speaking through the prophet Isaiah, and he turns his voice from a declaration to an inquiry. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? What he is describing here is concerning, this, the, concerning his servant is so out of the ordinary, so out of the box, that the question has to be asked, who has believed what he's heard concerning this? That this is so out of the ordinary, so out of the box, that the question has to be asked, to whom has the arm of the Lord truly been revealed? These questions are posed due to the unbelievable nature of how this king, how this servant is conquering. The arm of the Lord can be understood as meaning the power that God wields in accomplishing his will, in defeating his enemies, the power he wields in expanding and establishing his kingdom. So the question here in verse 2 is a good one. How on earth is this servant a demonstration of that power? How is this beaten, brutalized, wounded man that looks like a beast, how is this a demonstration of power? Verse 2 and verse 3 speak of the, uh, revisit the earlier points about this servant's, this king's undesirable appearance. It says in uh, chapter 53, verse 2, for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. He is beaten beyond recognition he possesses no desirable attributes for us to gaze upon. He has no regality or royalty about him. He carried very little favor among men. 
He knew the appearing, he knew the experience rather of suffering. He knew the experience of poverty, of struggle. And yet this was the one whom the power of God to bring down kingdoms and rescue the world was working through. Who has believed what he has heard? Whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? You know, there are layers of faith. There's the faith to believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and King, but then there's like sub-layers underneath that. We all know that at the fundamental level, most of us come in this room agreeing that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world and Lord of all things. But then underneath that, there are some faith struggles that we wrestle with that should, that should automatically be assumed and embraced based on the first level, which is Jesus Christ is Lord of the universe. King of, all, King of all things, Savior of the world. For example, what we see underneath this declaration here is a call to believe that the wisdom of God and the wisdom of this king is actually wise. In other words, what's being asked here in Isaiah chapter 53 is not just, is he king? But also, is this truly how you establish a kingdom? Do you establish a kingdom through a man that's beaten and whipped and mocked and scorned? Is this how you establish kingdom? Jesus, from the very beginning, shows up in his ministry in, in the New Testament and begins to reshape and reorient our ideas concerning how should a conquering king actually conquer? <clears throat> we read, for example, in Matthew 5, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What? It's not how I remember it. The wealthy and the powerful, those are the people that inherit the kingdoms. He goes on and he says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. What? It's not how I remember that. It's the strong inherit everything, not, not meek people. People that are loud and take over and snatch that. Give me that. That's who wins, right? That's how the movies show it. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, that, I know that's not how I remember it. Merciful people are typically the first ones that get shot. Blessed are the pure in heart, for, their, for they shall see God. N nice guys finish last. But these are the terms for the expansion of Jesus' kingdom. And all of these terms are opposite of the terms that we understand are required to expand ours. How many times have you watched someone demonstrate a kingdom value? Maybe forgive a deep hurt by a family member. Maybe respond graciously to someone treating them harshly on the job or at home. Maybe going out of their way to show someone love without love being returned. 
maybe trying to guard their eyes against lust. Not, the, not committing adultery, not committing fornication, but simply trying to guard against even entertaining the thoughts. Maybe guarding their hearts against the greed of the world and saying, you know what? Okay, enough is enough. I don't need all of that. I don't, I don't have to have that position. I don't have to have that job. I don't have to have that amount of money. I don't have to have that house. I don't have to have that car. How many times do you see people pushing against the world's kingdom values in favor of Christ's kingdom values? How many times do you see that happening and then you respond to yourself? Well, there's no way I can do that. How many times do you see that happening and possibly respond to yourself? Well, I would never do that. Somebody say something to me like that. They're going to get what's coming to them. I'm a Christian, but, you know, just trying to be real. It's in these moments that we aren't just struggling with the question, is he king? We are struggling with the question, is this truly how a king should establish a kingdom? In other words, it's almost as if we're saying, as Christians, right, because it happens all the time. Uh, you know, I, I mean, I know what the scripture says, but I mean, I'm just trying to be real. It's almost as if I'm saying, yeah, I know that you are king. You just don't know what you're talking about in terms of establishing a kingdom. I know that you're king, but I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to show you how to establish a kingdom down here, Right? Well, you up in the heavens somewhere, but I'm just trying to show you what's going on down here in real life. You understand? To this, I would say, God's wisdom appears like foolishness to us because we don't see what he sees. And nothing articulates this point more than the crucifixion. When we look at the crucifixion, we say, certainly he doesn't know what he's doing. Because, I mean, he has all power. If he was king, he would just come down and just wreck shop and put people in their place and boom, 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 and boom, it would be over. What are we, what was he doing? What is this? What's going on? This isn't the way you establish a kingdom. If I was king, I would do much differently. How do we get a kingdom out of this? But in order to understand this better, we have to understand that the coming king conquers by taking our place. In order to understand the crucifixion, you have to understand that his conquering happens by taking your place. In verse 4, it says, surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Why was Jesus a man of sorrow. Why was Jesus so acquainted with grief? Why was Jesus a man familiar, as a king, familiar with pain and with suffering? There's an answer for it. It's because he was a man who came to bear yours. 
He was familiar with sorrow because he came to bear your sorrow. He was acquainted with grief because he came to bear your grief. He was familiar with pain and suffering because he came to bear your pain and your suffering. Early on in the Old Testament, we come to learn that God is a perfect God. We come to learn that God is a holy God, and due to his holiness and due to his perfections, no sin can remain in his presence. We come to learn that early in the Old Testament. And so from the very beginning, there are sacrifices made to absorb the punishment that is due to the people as a result of their imperfection and as a result of their unholiness. On the Day of Atonement, Aaron is given the charge to perform a task on behalf of the people. And that task is Aaron is to bring a goat into the holy place and into the tent of meeting and on the altar. And he's to place his hands on the goat and confess the iniquities of the people and all of their transgressions, all of their sins. And God is, is symbolically or God is actually transferring the sins of the people to the goat, and then the goat goes off into a remote place. And that's meant to mean one thing. Somebody has to bear the burden for your sin. <coughs> and if it's not you, it has to be somebody else. Scapegoat is what we call it. And all throughout the Old Testament, we see these examples of sacrifices being made to paint the picture that somebody has to bear the burden for your sin. The goat was intended to carry the iniquity of the people away. What do we hear in verse 5 of chapter 53? But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed why was the servant beaten to nothing because he was sent to absorb our punishment why was the king pierced in his side because he was sent to bear our sin and our shame absorbing grief bearing sin and shame connected to a fallen and broken world this is how he conquered this is how he wins. Let me also be clear that physical, <clears throat> excuse me, physical healing is not the point of this text. That's a more recent translation of Ephesians chapter 53. But the historical translation of Ephesians, I'm sorry, Isaiah chapter 53 has always been the idea that this is about sin. The entire context of chapter 53 is about sin. And when you hear by his stripes, we are healed in other places. For example, 1 Peter chapter, chapter 2. You hear this again, for his, by his stripes, we are healed. It says this. It says, verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. What are the wounds in need of healing? The wounds that cause us to stray like sheep. And what are those wounds? 
sin and iniquity, transgression. Now, that's not to say God doesn't heal. He calls the elders to anoint the sick, lay hands on them, anoint them with oil, and the prayer of faith shall raise them up. We are to pray and we are to trust God with healing, but we are not to demand healing based on promises that were intended to secure our salvation, not our physical health. The biggest reason why this feels like a letdown to some of us, most of us, as we think about that, is the same reason we are, we are, uh, we, we are blind to this demonstration being the way that Jesus conquers the world. The same, the, the same reason that we are blind to the way that this is how Jesus saves the nation, the same way that we are blind to the, to the way that Jesus establishes the kingdom. And it is this, it's because we are so unfamiliar with just how devastating our sin is and just how hopeless it places us before our holy God. The reason why you read that and you say to yourself, man, well, I, I, wish it was, I wish it was guaranteed towards physical healing. All, all it is is sin. The reason you hear that and say that it's because you don't understand the significance of your sin. The Bible says that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. You know what the translation of that is? Somebody got to die. Somebody has to go. If, if, if sin is committed, and justice remains justice, then someone has to be punished for the sin. If you commit sin and there is no justice or, or, or there is no punishment for sin, then there is no justice. And if there is no justice, then God is no longer just. God is just. He is perfectly just which means that any wrongdoing done in his presence must be punished this is the significance of sin justice for transgression is required and our transgressions brothers and sisters are many every careless word requires payment Every way we're at requires payment. Every entertained idea that undermines the law of God is worthy of his judgment. Every single one of these things are worthy of righteous justice. And folks, we are all guilty of them. Verse 6 of chapter 53 says, all we like sheep, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So again, how does he conquer the world? How does he conquer and set in place his kingdom? How does he conquer the kingdoms of the world? He conquers them by dying for the people of the world. Note that the king conquered, conquered by dying. Not because he deserved to die, but because we deserve to die. 
He conquers by dying. He conquers by, by establishing a plan or establishing a way for God to be considered and remain just and merciful and loving. So every wayward word is hung upon him. Every careless act is hung upon him. Every stray attitude or entertained thought is hung upon him. Verse 7 and 9 speak to the innocence of the one in which it was hung upon. It says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Silent. Didn't utter a word as every careless word we uttered was hung upon him. And every way we're at that we performed was hung upon him. He didn't speak a word. He didn't say, this ain't fair, it's Brian's sin. Didn't utter a word. Although he had done no violence, he was violently murdered. Although there was no deceit in his mouth, he was deceitfully led to a tree to be hung. I find it fascinating as Christians how much we feel like we have to get the last word in when we disagree, when we argue, when we fight. I find it fascinating how desperately we feel like we have to vindicate ourselves over the most minor of offenses. I find it fascinating how viciously we fight to have our way in the most routine of disagreements. And yet here we read of a savior marching to the cross. Not because he's guilty, but because we are. Here we find a savior marching to the cross, not on his behalf, but on ours. And on the way he mutters, not a word of dissent. He doesn't say, this is Brian's fault. He should be here. They murdered him like a guilty convict, though he was an innocent man. They buried him like a wicked man, even though you couldn't find guilt even in his speech. This is how the king conquers. He conquers taking the punishment of the guilty in his innocence. Verse 10, it says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has... He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offering. He shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. This is a difficult passage to read because when you read it, it almost seems like God takes delight in seeing the servant brutally murdered. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him 
When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offering. He shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. It's not, he is not a glutton for punishment. What does the Lord delight in in this moment? Well, he delights in a few things. Number one, he delights in the fact that this crushing is saving. It says in verse 11 of chapter 50, 53, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Why, does it, why is it the will of the Lord to crush the son? Why does he take delight in the son being crushed? Because in the sun being crushed, all those who truly deserve to be crushed might be spared. Because there is no remission of sin without the shedding of blood. And so the shedding of the one's blood remits the sin of the many. Why is it the will of the Lord to crush the son? It's because in this crushing, he was establishing glory. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Listen, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. In other words, he went to the cross, but he went to the cross looking past the cross to the joy of being seated at the right-hand side of his father. He went to the cross, but he went to the cross looking past the cross to the joy of saving a multitude of people, countless, that cannot be named in number. He went to the cross looking past the cross to the joy. It's the same looking past that the father is doing in the moments that the son is being crushed. He's looking past the cross to you and to me and to all those throughout generations and all those throughout the world that will be saved as a result of this servant laying his own life down. Why does it, why does it, why is it the will of the Lord to crush the son? Verse 12, therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgression, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Listen to the language. I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong. Why why is it the will of the Lord to crush the son? Because in the crushing, conquering happens. Dividing of spoils. 
servant to the cross, king coming down. Dividing of spoils. He conquers. He establishes his kingdom. How? Because he poured out his soul to death and numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many. This is how your king conquers. I know how the world, I know how the world wants you to pursue kingdom expansion. But I can assure you, there is only one way that a kingdom will truly be expanded. Because this kingdom is eternal. And this king has, has already performed the work necessary for it to be one. And that is through the death, burial, resurrection of the, of the, of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And in order for us to do kingdom work, we trust in that work. But in order for us to live like kingdom people, we must live not according to our wisdom and how to establish a kingdom. We must live in accordance to his wisdom and in order, in order to establish and expand the kingdom. And so as you come to this text, as you come to the word and you read the scriptures and you, and you read something that doesn't necessarily jive with your sensibilities, remember that you are king's people. Remember that you are kingdom people. Remember that you're trying to establish a kingdom that is not of this world. And follow the one who has paved the way for you. Follow the one who has conquered on your behalf. 